Imagine if you could overhear private, unfiltered conversations between the world's most influential and inspirational women. Now you can. Welcome to Leadership Global, where you'll hear from inspiring leaders who will help you define your vision, grow your leadership, expand your influence, and increase your impact to leave a lasting legacy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's Lead Hership Global podcast episode. I am so glad to welcome all of you to today's program where we have the honor and privilege of speaking with Linda Conyard. She is Australia's leading pioneer advocating for trauma-sensitive change and informed responsiveness to trauma in the workplace. Today, we're going to talk about how trauma impacts leadership and how to begin the journey of healing through trauma to be able to embark on a more authentic leadership style. This is going to be a power-packed conversation, and I am so glad to be able to welcome Linda to the program. You know, we don't tend to think of the workplace as a place where we need to overtly work with trauma. Trauma tends to belong in the domain of mental health for many of us. It belongs to your therapist, not your leadership consultant or your executive coach. But here's the truth. Adults spend most of their time at work. And we're at work actually more than we are with our loved ones, with our leisure activities, or with our civic activities. In fact, workplaces need to become places where we not only grow and develop, but they also need to be places where we can heal and repair what's been hurt. You know, the basic definition of trauma is that it's an experience or an event that overwhelms your capacity to depend upon or protect yourself. In a 1998 study of 17,000 adults, it was found that one in 10 adults had experienced at least one traumatic event in their childhood. And that could be psychological, physical, sexual abuse. It could be domestic violence. Living with family members who are substance abusers could deal with mental illness, suicide, criminal involvement. And get this, 25% of adults have experienced two or more traumatic events. So trauma impacts the way we behave, the way we interact with relationships, and the way we learn and grow. And this shift from what's wrong with you to what's happened to you is absolutely essential, even in the workplace. In fact, I would say we need this now more in our places of work than ever. And while much of the trauma that we think about is acute trauma or one-time trauma, like say a car accident, a lot of trauma that we experience is actually repeated trauma. And with repeated trauma, our brains and bodies shift into a protection mode. How can I shut down the system so I don't continue to experience this overwhelming state day after day after day. And this efficiency and repetition of protection actually becomes our way of living in the world. It becomes our personality. It also becomes the way we lead. So with that, we are so lucky to welcome Linda Conyard. She is Australia's leading pioneer advocating for trauma-sensitive change. And she will explain how to overcome the traumas in your life in order to lead a healthy, balanced, 
and authentic leadership style. But first, before we dive in, let me tell you a little bit about Linda. Now, as I noted, Linda is Australia's leading pioneer advocating for sociopolitical trauma-sensitive change and informed responsiveness to unnecessary trauma in the health, education, justice, government, and private sectors. Now, Linda's daughter experienced a trauma at a very young age. In fact, she was only six months old when she was diagnosed with bilateral retinoblastoma, which is not so easy for me to actually say, but it's retinoblastoma, which is a rare childhood cancer that affects the retina in the eye. Linda's daughter survived, but was left totally blind by the age of three. And the unfolding and recognition of her own significant and long-term childhood trauma from living in hidden domestic violence actually led her to her studies and subsequently her own trauma recovery. She became the therapist that she wished she could have found. And she's determined to change the trajectory of trauma on a collective, cultural, community, family, and individual level and eliminate all unnecessary trauma through education and training in trauma sensitivity. Welcome, Linda. Thank you so much. It's so awesome to be here. And it's such a pleasure to be part of the Leadership Global community. It's it's a wonderful space that you're creating, Linda. Oh, thank you so much. I will tell you, it is our honor, it is our privilege to have you on today's show. So to kick us off, Linda, tell us a little bit about your journey and what led you to have such passion around helping leaders heal from trauma. We heard a little bit about your story at the top of the hour, but tell us a little bit more about what led you down this journey to now be one of Australia's leading voices in trauma-sensitive change. Yeah, and I think it is that that lived experience that I normalised as a child. I knew it wasn't right, and it wasn't okay that you know I was being hit every every night or whatever whatever was going on. But you know, it it was just it just was my normal. Um, the hiding the welts on my legs when I went to school. Um, you know, those kind of things where I just found myself quite isolated and self sufficient as a young uh, child. Um, it was just my normal. We weren't allowed to have friends. We weren't you know. My father was, he was the one that had the social interactions, but it wasn't us. We sort of were kept quite isolated. So we weren't allowed to have friends over. So I found that that was, that was pretty um, formative in my years and how I became self-reliant, I'm always self-reliant, like really didn't trust so much other people because I couldn't trust other people. Um, but, yeah, it's like that kind of experience that led all through through my life until you know, with my daughter's uh, diagnosis, it was like I was so not prepared for that trauma, although maybe on the other hand I was. <laughs> so it's like with that with that inability to even recognise that I had trauma until I was like 50 or something like that, I was doing my master's degree in gestalt psychotherapy and I started to understand myself and unravel my own um, embedded uh, trauma responses that was just, I had just normalized as my way of being in the world, even though it wasn't, you know, always functional, it was how I was in the world and how I survived my life until I was able to see the trauma and, and resolve that for myself. And then it became my mission to actually change that. I knew that, you know, through the experiences, even especially through my daughter's experience in the medical model and the education model with her disability, 
there's so much unnecessary trauma, what I call unnecessary trauma. And for me, that just purely comes around because people don't know, they don't recognize the signs and the symptoms of trauma. And that's why I feel that this education is so, so important because once people get it and once they understand, then it's easy. It doesn't become like um, a fight between you know, the, the, the person who's experiencing the trauma response and then the other person who's experienced their own stuff that's not resolved. So for me, that's what really uh, happens. And that's how I've come to this, this point in my life. Thank you. Thank you for explaining that. So I have a question about that. I was um, thinking that there might've been a link between the experience of your daughter's trauma and your own trauma. So your own childhood trauma that you felt like you were just simply being in the world, uh, normalizing your own childhood trauma, I was thinking that that may be linked to or may have surfaced some of those issues due to your daughter's experience. Do you feel like your daughter's experience made you more self-aware of your own trauma? I would say no, because what what I experienced was just I was traumatized. I then became not available to my children because of my own trauma of this experience with my baby, six months old. I didn't even know they got cancer. Children got cancer. Like that was my level of not even being aware that hospitals are full of children who have cancer. So until like you're pushed up against something, usually it's not really fully in your awareness. But for me, I spent my time in trauma response, in trauma not available, doing the best that I could with what I had. It wasn't really until I started to study um, that, and because we were, we had to do a, a quite a significant amount of our own trauma, um, not trauma, our own therapy in that master's degree, which is excellent. And that's where it started to unravel for me in in a really big way. Yeah. I see. Thank you. Thank you for explaining that. Well, much of the trauma that we think about is acute trauma or one-time trauma, like a car accident. I know that a lot of the trauma that we experience is actually repeated trauma, much like your experience. And with repeated trauma, our brains and bodies shift into a protection mode. Um, And so this efficiency and repetition protection becomes our way of living in the world. It becomes our personality. It becomes the way we lead. And so how have you seen this affect leadership styles in the workplace? Yeah. So I guess one thing that I want to offer here is like, there's the study you would have heard of it, the ACE study, the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study. If anybody wants to have a look at that, it's a, it's a great tool just to actually firstly um, either acknowledge that there is a lot of trauma experiences in your life that we don't usually call trauma because we're so good at normalizing our experiences um, because we have to. Um, so that's one thing that I want to say there. And then um, I guess the other thing too might be that it shows up in maybe leaders micromanaging. You know, they might um, they might not have trust that their staff can do the job and that then leads into them avoiding their own work for maybe whatever reason. So maybe there's something in the leader that, you know, they've stepped up into a position that they may not be ready for. And I think I... I notice a lot across the board a lot that people are promoted or put in the situations but there's no support there's like an expectation that they will uh, achieve whatever they have to achieve and none of us can do anything very well without support and that's the truth because we're not we're hardwired to be in community and to support each other 
So to expect as a leader to expect that you um, should be doing it on your own is probably not so helpful for you when you can actually use your staff if you're really um, connected with yourself and you're really solid in yourself, then you can use your staff to actually forward everybody's game. So it becomes like a co-creation then rather than you being the leader. So sometimes it can be like the leader might be seen as ordering or dictating to staff. Um, and it's like just what, what they know to do. So there's other ways. Once they once people can connect to themselves, because leaders are all human beings, that's what they are. And you're in this human experience. So the most there's three great disconnects that I speak about, and that's the disconnection to self, the disconnection to others, and then the disconnection to your environment. So the first one that we really have to do is come back home. And I've called my, one of my programs Journey Back Home because it's such an important way to come back to yourself and to really see who you are because we don't really know. And that's that, that's that existential question, isn't it? Who am I? Who am I? What am I here for? So it's like even some of us are not even aware of that question. So, yeah, it's, it's around, I guess, noticing what you're always dealing with, what, is, what comes up um, in your space as a leader all the time to be able to um, recognise where is the pattern that I have. So it's really awareness is key to any kind of change. And until we see something, you know, we just don't have the opportunity to do anything about it. But once we see something, we can't not see it and it just keeps showing up. So we've got plenty of opportunities usually to work on ourselves. That's great, Linda. Thank you. And, you know, you mentioned that one of the fundamental issues with leadership is this idea of trust and belief. And so with repeated trauma, it's not just our self-regulation and mood that's often impacted. It's also, and perhaps even more, our trust and belief in relationships. And I think this is important because leadership is first and foremost a relationship and relational trauma can affect our ability to work with and lead others. So what are some of the signs and symptoms of trauma in a way that leaders deal with relationships in the workplace? Yeah, so the I think that the safe space often for leaders is to tell people what to do. And even if they're sort of sensing that they're not quite like that, just really watch what, what, how you do speak and how you, you know, notice in your body when someone, you know, might challenge you and see what happens in your body, whether your belly tightens or whether your heart starts to race, you know, the, the trauma is always trapped in the body and that's a really good sign. Um, but then it's like the next step is to understand what's actually happening in your body. And usually there's a disconnect between the mind and the body when people have trauma. And, you know, Peter Levine in his book, uh, Waking the Tiger, he wrote, trauma is a fact of life. However, it doesn't have to be a life sentence. And trauma itself isn't the, I love that, yes. (laughs) Trauma itself isn't the actual issue. It's when we can't assimilate or integrate the experience, then it becomes a problem. And this repeating that you're speaking about is, what occurs. It's like we we keep having the same response. And it's like Peter Levine also talks about um, reenacting our trauma. So it's like when something's unresolved and we're not able to integrate it into our experiences, then it's like our we subconsciously recreate the same kind of scenario in an, in a way that we try, we're trying to resolve something, but it just keeps coming at us. We don't have the next step on what do I do now? And it's, we don't have the awareness. We just keep seeing that this thing keeps coming to us. And it might be like, um, 
your t- staff turnover might be an issue for leaders. Presenteeism, like where people are present, but they're not actually productive in their work. It might be absenteeism that is showing up. So these kind of issues that leaders deal with, when, when we have a look at it in, in um, the connection of the whole uh, workspace, it's interesting what often shows up. And the only work that leaders can do is work on themselves. So if leaders want to have their team sorted out, wrong address. It has to start with the leaders. They, they have to come back to themselves and look at what's going on for them before they can even think about what to do with their team. Their team. And often, like when um, I know when I've made shifts myself, my actual external environment changes. That the, the environment doesn't have to do anything, but, but I've shifted and I've changed, then the actual reaction to that and the response to that in my environment, that it changes in some shape or form. So leaders will find that the more work that they do, the inner work that they do for themselves, the environment that they're in and what they're creating will shift and will change. That's just incredible insight, Linda. Thank you so much. And it sounds like really what you're pointing to here is largely self-awareness. And what we know is that trauma impacts self-awareness because under repeated extreme stress, we tend to shut down our senses. We tend to take in as little information as possible. And so essentially we kind of go numb. And as a leader, that may look like, you know, you're unable to listen to your direct reports the way you need to, or you may find yourself feeling disconnected from your work or your team. So how can leaders become more more self-aware, more attuned to their inability to connect with their teams and with others in their workplace? Linda, what I found in my own trauma recovery journey is that I could not have done that by myself. I needed the external eyes to be able to show me my blind spots because there's a neural pathway in the brain. This is really physiological. There's a neural pathway in the brain that we operate from all the time. And that's what you know, you've been speaking about, the way that we are in the world. That's what that is. And that's been created from our experiences and definitely from our unresolved, unintegrated experiences. So when we have that kind of an operating system, it's like we can't see because we're even if what we're doing is dysfunctional, it's what we know to be in. Yeah. So it's like if we if we don't have that external eyes, then often we're trying um trying what's that quote from Albert Einstein? He says about we can't um solve our problems with the same thinking that created it. It's simple, it's simply like that. Like we can't, in my view and my experience and sitting with many, many people in their trauma recovery, we just can't see what's what has become our normal and we're comfortable in that. So the, the, the resistance and the change and the shift is when we start to feel uncomfortable and none of us like to feel uncomfortable. So there's a real, you know, resistance to that place of, un, of discomfort, but that's the place where the gold is. So if leaders are willing to go to that place in a safe container envir- and environment, then they're going to find gold and they're going to find a whole change to their, to their world. And when you're talking about um, how we can um, 
easily shut down and do that numbing thing. If people type in still face experiment on in Google, this this experiment will come up and it was around, I think the child was about 18 months old and the mother. And initially they're talking, the baby's gooing and going, making signs, pointing, you know, all this kind of real engagement and relational experience. The mother turned her head and then she came back to the child and was very, no expression on her face. It took not very long, under a minute, I reckon, before this child started to become distressed. And she started squealing. Then she started crying. So it's like we, when you're saying before about we think that, you know, traumas are big things, they're actually not. So the key to that um, experiment was when the mother started to engage again, her face was open and she's smiling and the baby settled again. She, The baby had her ground because that's called co-regulation. So when, when that occurs, and, and if you think about this in the workplace, I just take it to the workplace now. So someone is having an experience of some kind. It might be that they're complaining to their leader about their team members and they can't get on with the whatever, okay, it is. The leader is feeling maybe not, doesn't have whatever they need to deal with this situation. So then what happens is the charge in each person's nervous system keeps climbing and what is needed is someone to be really solid and that's the leader to be really solid and then this person can come down from their charge and that's where they meet. And you see this in society all the time. The charge just keeps going up and up. The fight's there. It just continues. So to be able to really bring that down. So it doesn't have to be a big deal or a perceived big deal for us to have impact and have a traumatic experience that hasn't um resolved itself or it hasn't been able to integrate into our being. And often you'll find when people come to my clinic with whatever they come with, it comes back to a, you know, under seven-year-old situations, even if they can't name it, the feeling is back there and then in a young child. So that's where it usually starts and that's where our development then gets a little bit skewed because of our a lack of attachment, the unavailability of the parent, whatever the reason, it doesn't matter. And it's not about blaming, it's just about understanding. And I find my clients, when they when they understand, they actually breathe out. They just go, oh, you know, there's this sense of relief. They go, oh my gosh, I get that. So it's not about being wrong. It's like you said, what's happened to you and what do you want to do about it moving forward? And you don't have to drag up your whole history. It's like what points of your past are showing up in your present that don't belong here? So it's identifying those and then you can make the changes and the shifts. So smart. And, you know, one of the, uh, I think, examples that you pointed to is how trauma can make it harder to manage emotion, especially emotion that may be charged with conflict or disagreement or um, misalignment because we have a much narrower window of tolerance with trauma. Our window of tolerance is a place where we can comfortably manage stressors. And trauma tends to have us react to even minor stressors by shutting down or flying off the handle or overreacting. Um, And trauma makes us protect ourselves rigidly. Um, And this kind of lack of flexibility can make it harder to kind of manage or roll with day-to-day stressors. So Linda, how have you seen that manifest? And what are some of the ways that 
uh, leaders can deal with these patterns. I love how you said that sometimes you need an outside third-party objective view to even recognize that some of these patterns are in place. But if a leader were to recognize that, how could they deal with some of these patterns? So some of the things that I think of that are, I imagine, really difficult for leaders to deal with would be things like, you know, bullying in the workplace that, you know, you might walk into a really toxic environment. What do you do with that? And it's like, depending on what you've come from as well and what is in your own family history, and this is where we go into a little bit of the systemic work that I do with um, my clients in in organisations, it's like looking at systemically what through generations is also showing up. And it's quite funny sometimes when, when I've worked with CEOs that they see, when we start to look at it, it's like they can start to see their representations of their family members and how it's playing out in their, in their teams. It's quite, quite, yeah, it's worth a chuckle. It's worth a chuckle. And then we can do go to work on it. But, you know, things like that toxic work environment and it's like this is where the support um, is needed. You know, how can we be expected as leaders to know what to do in this environment if we're not trained in it? And how many leaders are trained in emotional intelligence, which has been known as soft skills for such a long time and not valued, but it's like there's a bit of a demand that we actually pay attention to these kind of skills. And then for me, bringing that systemic intelligence, which I don't think is even on the in the library in the same book or any in any of the books at this point in time. So for me, that's the leading edge. And it's like if leaders have their IQ, so they've got their intelligence, which all leaders have, they've got their skill set. It's about adding in the emotional intelligence and then the systemic intelligence. And for me, that's a pioneering leader. And that's where our leaders, I believe, are going to have to upskill themselves because that's where we're heading to have more understanding around these, this combination of um, skills that that's required. So I hope I've answered your question there. Yeah. And I love this idea of systemic change. So it's not just about individual shifts or uh, perhaps organizational shifts, but it really is systemic shifts, which I love that idea that, um, you know, since trauma affects our self-awareness, it can also affect our social awareness and it can affect our awareness of our team dynamics. So if I can't feel what I'm thinking and feeling, then it becomes much harder for me to empathetically feel what you're thinking or what you're feeling. And you're apt to misread or minimize the emotions um, that your teammates and your coworkers may be feeling. And I, I think that, you know, extreme stress tends to make leaders narrow the data that they have access to and the way that they process that data. And so they are likely to ignore information that's coming in from others or from this system, right? As you talk about systemic change. So how do you help leaders become socially aware? How do you help them change the pattern of their own behavioral defaults? So I love the quote from Anae Nin. She says, um, we don't see the things the way they are. We see them the way we are. And that's exactly what you're saying. Yeah. So it's like, just know that. Just know that this is is how we do see the world and it's okay. But the the leaders who don't want to do that anymore, who are really... um, 
connected to what I'm saying here, that there's much more potential if you actually come back to yourself. And that is where it starts. You can do all the courses you like. You can do all the training that you like, whatever. Unless you address what's within, what is without will stay the same. And it doesn't matter. I keep saying to my clients, I've said it to myself, you can't run far enough away from yourself because you always catch up. So, you know, these kinds of moving job to job or whatever, it it doesn't work because you find yourself in the same kind of scenario and you're always the lead movie star in that scenario. So it's about, you know, what kind of leader do you want to be? You know, what, what do you want to put in in these areas that are usually missing? And I say that because it hasn't been um, um, seen as important in the whole uh, sphere of leadership, the emotional intelligence and the systemic intelligence. So it's like if you're interested in that and you want to see what that might bring, then I'm happy to have conversations with any leader who who's, who's sparked an interest. Um, but it's like until you do that, you will always get what you what you continue to get. That's right. Linda, I tell you, there have been so many pearls of wisdom that you have offered and so many memorable sort of one-liners that really I have written down and I'm going to keep. In fact, I'm going to put them around my computer. Uh, Just really, really insightful and impactful pearls of wisdom. But I'm going to switch gears a little bit and now ask you about your own leadership advice. So I'm sure along your journey, you've received incredible insight and you've received advice from other leaders that have really impacted you and maybe changed your trajectory. So as you reflect on all the amazing leaders that you've learned from, what's the best leadership advice that you've received that you'd like to share with our audience today? That is such a tricky question. I'm finding that such a tricky question because nothing jumps out at me. And I sort of, uh, in thinking about that, I just wonder whether I could hear anything at that time or whether I was just in my own (laughs) path of whatever destruction or whatever I was in. And I just wonder about that because I don't really feel like I had a mentor in those places but whether I was actually open to that as well, I have a wondering. So, but I do remember when I was oh, about 17, I wanted to join the Air Force and the, the, the man that I worked for in the United Services Club in Brisbane, he was an ex-squadron leader. And if I was to say a mentor, he would have been the one that had the most impact on me. And it was just around his relational style and his, his actual compassion and caring for me, that's what really stuck with me. And I guess, you know, in my compassionate power workplaces, I actually honor him in that because it's something that really touched me deeply at a young age, just starting out kind of in work. But yeah, as, as far as that, that's the thing that really stands out for me. You know, I think that is so insightful because it's not about the words someone said. It's the way they behaved with you. It's the way that they interacted with you. It's the way that they showed grace and mercy and compassion. But they also believed in you, right? Perhaps at a time when you didn't even believe in yourself, they believed in you. And I think that is the essence of real leadership. People who lift you up, who 
help support you, who help show you the beauty, the strength, the intelligence, the incredible giftedness that we each have, even if we can't see it. So Linda, what a wonderful way to end today's conversation. Thank you for that incredible insight. And thank you for an incredibly powerful conversation. I tell you, I... I, stand in awe of not just the work that you've done to overcome your own personal trauma, as well as um, sort of overcome the trauma that you've experienced with your daughter, but now the work that you do with leaders all around the world for them to, as you said, the journey back home, for them to actually embark on the journey back home to themselves and to others. It's absolutely inspiring and it's so impactful. And I just want to say thank you for the work you're doing and for being on the Leadership Global Podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Linda. I really appreciate it. Thank you for joining Leadership Global, a podcast for and about unstoppable women stepping into courage, claiming their power and embracing bold leadership. Join us each week as we talk to a collection of inspirational women changing the world and tackling the most pressing issues we're facing today as women and as leaders. See you next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.